Good evening, everyone, and welcome. My name is Michael Willis. I'm one of the fellows here at the Middle East Centre at St Anthony's College, and I'm very pleased to welcome you to our event this evening. Now, Tuesdays this term, we have been dedicating at the Middle East Centre to looking at important new books on the Middle East and North Africa. And if those of you who came this time last week, you would have heard Jeremy Bowen, the BBC's Middle East editor, talk about his new book, The Making of the Modern Middle East. And this evening, I'm pleased to say we are very privileged to have another very prominent speaker address us about his latest book. Ian Martin is a distinguished human rights activist and international diplomat who has held some of the most important roles in both fields. From 1986 to 1992, he served as Secretary General of Amnesty International. He went on to work for the United Nations, serving a large number of senior roles in missions in Haiti, Rwanda, East Timor and Nepal, to name just a few of them. However, he's probably best known to those of us who work on and familiar with the Middle East and North Africa with his work in Libya. In April 2011, in the wake of a popular uprising against the regime of Muammar Gaddafi, he was named Special Advisor to the Secretary General of the United Nations on post-conflict planning for Libya. He then went directly on to serve as Special Representative of the Secretary General and Head of the UN Support Mission in Libya from the 11th of September 2011 until the 17th of October 2012. He was therefore very much at the heart of efforts to fashion a response from the outside world, the international community, whether we can call it the international community. I wondered over what was the best phrase. Response to the uprising in Libya and its aftermath. Now, the role played by outside actors in events in Libya during this period attracted significant debate, both at the time and also since then, over issues of whether too much was done or not enough, whether it was done by the wrong people at the right time, or the right people at the wrong time, or indeed the wrong people at the wrong time. The prolonged civil conflict that Libya has found itself in and experienced over much of the past decade has often been attributed to the events that took place and decisions that were made in the first year or so after the uprisings began in 2011. Not all of this debate has been as informed or as rooted in, act in what actually happened as it could have been. That is why it's so valuable to have someone who was actually there and at the centre of what was happening to give his considered view and assessment of this important period. Ian Martin has now written and published his reflections and assessment in a new book, All Necessary Measures, note the question mark, which I think is important, the United Nations and International Intervention in Libya. We are therefore very pleased and honoured and we want to thank Ian for coming to speak to us tonight here about his book. Ian. Thanks very much, uh, Michael, and my appreciation to uh, St Anthony's and the Middle East Centre for uh, inviting me here. The most important question about Libya is what on earth to do now about the mess that Libya is in. And yesterday I watched the eighth special representative of the Secretary General in 13 years, Mr. Abdullahi Batili, brief the UN Security Council for the first time after taking on uh, picking up the baton in Libya. I'm afraid that's not what this book is about and you won't find the answers to that question in it. It's about the intervention in 2011 and the immediate aftermath. And I wrote it, apart from in order to keep myself somewhat occupied during the COVID lockdowns, because I have become increasingly irritated with references to Libya at that time, which I think either distort what happened or at least don't fully reflect the reality and it's not uncommon these days to hear Afghanistan, Iraq and Libya mentioned almost in the same breath as examples of uh, disastrous Western intervention. Whatever one thinks about each of those interventions, they're radically different in their, in their nature for sure. 
And so I wanted to look at uh, what, what I think is the reality of how the Libya intervention came about and was carried through. I also want to reflect on, I suppose, my own role, because I left Libya after its first post-Gaddafi election, its first election for more than 40 years, in some ways its first election ever, in July 2012. I left shortly after that at what was a moment of relative optimism, at which, uh, despite by then the death of the US ambassador and the jihadist attack on the US compounds in Benghazi, it was still, uh, there was still optimism that that election might be the basis for a positive way forward, and so I wanted to reflect on what more we could have done, what more could have been done in that early period that might perhaps have saved or mitigated the, the, the later problems in Libya. So although this book really isn't about what to do about Libya now, I think it's not irrelevant to three things. I mean, one, I still think that talking about Libya today is better done on the basis of a nuanced and, and accurate understanding of what actually happened at the beginning of the uh, intervention. But secondly, I think it's relevant to wider issues of international intervention and following the collapse of the international project in Afghanistan and the, and the despair. It's one major intervention that, that bears analysis. I, I quote in the introduction to the book a US diplomat who said uh, we uh, intervened in Iraq and occupied it, and it was a disaster. We intervened in Libya and didn't occupy it, and it was a disaster. And we haven't intervened in Syria, and it's a disaster. And so the question of whether there are forms of positive and effective uh, intervention is still one that has to be asked. The, the third thing that I think the book has some relevance to is for those of us who are interested in the United Nations and how the United Nations does things, the Libya case poses some important questions about decision-making in the United Nations Security Council and accountability back to the UN Security Council, and also about the role of the United Nations peace operations on the ground, of which the one I started up in Libya is, is one. So just to be clear on, on my own role, as, as Michael rightly referred to, I became involved because after military intervention had been authorized by the Security Council, at the first major gathering, international gathering of the countries that supported the intervention, the London Conference convened by the UK, which became something called the Libya Contact Group, Secretary General Ban Ki-moon was, was asked and agreed that the UN uh, would in some way take the lead in post-conflict planning. Uh, and I was then asked to come to the UN Secretariat to begin to think about that. I did that despite not being a Middle East expert uh, or an Arabic speaker. I was asked to do it because of some of my other experience in peace operations elsewhere. And I then was, in effect, required to go and start the mission up when Tripoli fell quicker than anybody expected and see it through its first year and the first election. In the reflections from me that you circulated as part of the notice uh, for this seminar, I posed a number of questions and I'm going to discuss them tonight under five main heads. The first is, how did the intervention come about and was it justified? What was the case for intervention? Secondly, how were the military operations that were authorised carried out and what implications did they have? Thirdly, was there ever an alternative to a military outcome, uh, a mediated outcome, a managed transition? Fourthly, what thought was given to post-conflict planning to the day after? And finally, how did that play out on the ground in the, in the first year? So I'm going to try to uh, address each of those, those five. Regarding the arguments around intervention in the first place, the major retrospective controversy is really, was there actually going to be a massacre in Benghazi as those who intervened said was the, the basis for humanitarian intervention? And so in the book, I try to examine as closely as possible the early response from the Gaddafi regime to the uprisings across Libya, not only in the east, in, in Benghazi, but also in, in Tripoli, uh, in Misrata, and in, in, 
in other places, and the way uh, what were initially peaceful demonstrations were met with lethal, lethal force. There's no doubt that there was some exaggerated reporting of what happened, uh, including from Al Jazeera, for example. There's no doubt that the way in which fears were expressed was exaggerated with talk of genocide, with references to another Rwanda, another Srebrenica. That, it has to be said, was compounded by Gaddafi's own rhetoric, his talk of the those involved in the uprising as rats who were going to be expunged uh, street by street, alley by alley by alley by alley. And my own conclusion is that certainly were good reasons to fear killings, including of civilians and other reprisals, had Gaddafi's forces gone on to take Benghazi, the epicenter of the uprising, as they were only hours away from doing when military action actually began. And those fears were, were real. They were very real to Libyans in Benghazi, the International Committee of the Red Cross, which is not an organization, but it frightens easily, withdrew its personnel uh, and expressed fears about the killing of civilians. So in my view, they were not a pretext. Policy makers in London, Paris, Washington were indeed scarred by uh, Rwanda and, and Srebrenica. It's perhaps best expressed, uh, as, as I quote in the book, by the then Norwegian foreign minister, who today is Norway's prime minister, Jonas Stora, a man who actually was very much in favor of trying to bring about a non-military outcome. But he said, as politicians, we belong to a generation that has a disastrous experience of Rwanda and Srebrenica with us. So that's the, the first point I want to make, that fears were real, substantially justified, uh, and not in my view a pretext. But the other thing that I think doesn't come through in a lot of references, I read somewhere the other day a reference to what happened in Libya as the US invasion of Libya, which isn't exactly what I remember happening. Uh, it certainly is largely grouped with other Western interventions, but it was actually Arab voices that were loudest and foremost in calling for intervention, including military intervention, including a, a no-fly zone. Uh, they were Libyan voices, and one of the most dramatic effects on UN decision-making was the defection of all Libya's diplomats at the, the UN, led by the deputy permanent representative, eventually followed by the permanent representative who had been close to Gaddafi. That had a profound effect on the diplomatic climate in, in New York. But it was Arab multilateral organizations, the Arab League, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. Uh, it was uh, Arab civil society voices. And of course, it was a number of Arab states, particularly the, the Gulf states. So although there were states, Syria, Algeria, that uh, were reluctant to see uh, international intervention, in fact, the majority in the, in the Arab uh, institutions called for it. And one can't take the Libyan decision-making out of the broader context of what came to be discussed, uh, called, although perhaps we should drop this, the, the Arab Spring, the context of the other Arab uprisings, because there was certainly a degree of sympathy across the, the Arab world and a fear that if Gaddafi succeeded in putting down an uprising of his own people, that would have wider consequences in the, in the region. So that takes me to the way decision-making played out in the United Nations uh, Security Council. And certainly, French President Sarkozy, British Prime Minister Cameron, were pretty gung-ho in calling for intervention, but calling specifically for a no-fly zone, even though uh, it came to be pointed out to them by their, their military advisors that a no-fly zone in itself would have had little effect in checking what was going on uh, on the ground. And it was really President Obama whose decision-making, if you look at it up close, and there are very close accounts in, from many of the, the, the key participants, which was most careful, in which he said, uh, don't ask me to support a no-fly zone in the Security Council unless what Gaddafi's forces are doing on the ground uh, is addressed, it, it won't uh, uh, check him. 
there was a major argument within that administration. Uh, intervention was very much opposed by the then Secretary of Defense, uh, uh, Gates, uh, also incidentally by Vice President Biden. And when Obama finally took the decision to support intervention, according to Gates, he told Gates it had been a 51-49 call. So it was not an enthusiastic US-led uh, in intervention. The other aspects of dynamics in the Security Council I think are particularly interesting is the way in which the, the three African members of the Security Council were persuaded to support intervention. Without their votes, there would not have been nine votes in the Security Council, and there the, the key vote was South Africa's and the decision of Jacob Zuma as, as president, who before long was strongly criticizing the form the intervention took but also the abstention of, uh, of Russia, and that's gone on being an issue of considerable interest. In 2011, the foreign policy decision maker in Moscow was President Medvedev. Putin was, had stepped back to the role of, uh, of prime minister, and it was Medvedev who took the decision that Russia would abstain, and it was quite immediately controversial. The, the Russian ambassador to, uh, to Libya resigned. And very soon, when the intervention started, Putin was denouncing it as a medieval crusade, and Medvedev was defending publicly against uh, Putin his decision to, to abstain. And there are still divergent views from those who've tried to examine it closely as to what was really going on. Obama writes in his memoir that he can't believe that Medvedev had took the decision without Putin's uh, support and, and consulting him but it does seem to have been a, a genuine disagreement. And so those African votes, the decisions of Russia and China to abstain rather than to veto, meant that the Security Council adopted its resolution authorizing all necessary measures, the, uh, the, the title of the, of the book. So my answer to that first set of questions is that there was a humanitarian case, and, and I also believe that non-intervention was almost inconceivable in a context which both looked back to failures in Rwanda and, uh, and Bosnia, but also looked around at what was going on in the, the Arab world. Well, that leads to the question, how was that all necessary measures mandate actually implemented? And before long, it was being implemented by NATO. The early military action was... Uh, outside NATO, but before long it was brought under the NATO chain of command, and the first area of controversy around the NATO intervention is, did NATO exceed a mandate which in the language of the Security Council resolution was to use all necessary measures to protect civilians, and did they exceed that mandate by uh, going on to of the objective of regime change. It's not an easy line to draw between protecting civilians and regime change in a context where a regime is using all its military resources in a way that uh, endangers uh, civilians. But my own conclusion is very clear that although one might be hard put to it to say where exactly the line is crossed, that the line was crossed, I, I think, is impossible to, to argue against. As the NATO action went from defending or enabling the defense of towns and cities that Gaddafi's forces had attacked after the uprisings there, to supporting the attacks by the rebels as they were able to go on the offensive towards places still controlled by uh, the Gaddafi regime, and then finally, when the NATO operation continued, even after the fall of Tripoli, and uh, the rebels took the last Gaddafi strongholds of, of certain Bani Walid, and I think it's pretty hard to argue that when NATO jets fired on Gaddafi's co convoy as he fled Sirte with some adherents, clearly a, a, a beaten man, that that was still a form of military action that was necessary and justified to protect civilians, although NATO spokespeople continue to maintain that. But although there's quite a lot written about, along those lines, about NATO's application of the, the mandate, 
what is very little discussed, and what I've tried to bring as much as I, I could uh, into the book, is the role of bilateral special forces. Special forces operations are, by definition, secret. If you read what has been written or given in evidence by General Sir David Richards, who was the Chief of Defence Staff at the time of the intervention in both his memoir and his uh, evidence he's given to uh, the House of Commons Select Committee, apart from criticising David Cameron's micromanagement and saying that he had to tell him that having been in the combined cadet force at Eton was not a qualification for micromanaging <laughs> a complex coalition military uh, operation. Richards, I think quite rightly, says that whatever was happening, whatever was being done by NATO from the air, it was the ground war that was crucial. And although in saying that he says little about the role of special forces and credits the, the, the rebel ground war, uh, in fact it's clear that the deployment of special forces was crucial to the success of the, of, of the ground war, not in, in huge numbers. And, and although there is, although those operations are secret, and not declared to Parliament or when select committees inquire later on, it's quite interesting to see how David Cameron writes about it in his own memoir. He says, with our allies, France, Qatar and the UAE, we ended up steering the ramshackle Libyan army from a secret cell in Paris providing weapons, support, and intelligence to the rebels planning an assault on Tripoli. This quartet of countries, known internally as the Four Amigos, a little <laughs> ironic um, uh, in retrospect, focus on training, equipping, and mentoring effective militias in the West. Though this was known to NATO, NATO and the US, once again, we were operating outside the traditional structures. So those special forces effectively trained, mentored, accompanied, equipped the, uh, the, the rebel brigades. Arms were supplied to them. Most of the supplies of arms were, were done by Qatar number one and the UAE number two. The France, the UK and the US uh, kept their, their, themselves away from that, except on one occasion when France directly supplied did a weapons drop, which it then maintained, were to provide weapons for the protection of civilians. These were undeclared to the United Nations, although any supplies of arms, uh, when there was with an arms embargo in effect, were supposed to be subject to authorization by the Sanctions Committee. They were not notified, and indeed, long after the event, Qatar was denying that it had supplied weapons, the, the UAE, in leaked documents acknowledged that it uh, had broken the embargo and indeed was continuing to do so as it has done one might say virtually to this day um, despite Security Council sanctions and I think that special forces operation those armed supplies were certainly outside any Security Council authority because the authority of all necessary measures required measures taken to be notified to the UN Secretary General and by him to the Security Council and I think raised major questions of accountability to the Security Council and indeed may raise major questions of accountability in domestic terms because uh, when there is no knowledge uh, of special forces operations then there is effectively no, uh, no accountability. Now the manner in which that support happened had some important implications for what followed in Libya I think. The assistance and the weapons supplies were provided outside of any civilian control, any chain of command. The National Transitional Council in Benghazi had no ability to exercise uh, a chain of command over the different revolutionary brigades, as they, uh, as, as they called them. And increasingly, Qatar and the UAE particular, in particular favoured particular armed groups on the ground. So, fairly crudely, Qatar favoured the groups that were more Islamist in orientation, whereas the UAE favoured those that were less Islamist in, in orientation. And that began tensions that played on through, through what followed, one might almost say, to the, the present day, as did the practice, as I've said, of, of breaking sanctions. 
So my third question is, was there ever a possibility of a mediated outcome, a managed transition, instead of the battle being fought on to a military victory? And there were multiple efforts, and I've tried to bring them together in the, in the book, in the way they unfolded and either did relate or didn't relate to each other. First off the ground actually was Norway, a country which tries to play a, a mediation role and was approached very early on by Saif al-Islam Gaddafi, uh, Gaddafi's son, uh, and there was actually a Norwegian negotiating team in Tripoli when the Security Council authorized military action and rapidly had to evacuate itself to Tunisia before the bombing began. So there was a, a Norwegian effort which has been very little written about or analyzed, I think, outside, uh, outside Norway. The United Nations responded, the Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, by appointing a special envoy, Mr. Al-Khatib, a former foreign minister of Jordan, and he began uh, engagement with the Gaddafi regime in Tripoli and with the National Transitional Council in Benghazi. The African Union rapidly called for a ceasefire uh, and set out what it called its roadmap for a negotiated outcome, appointed a high-level committee, which the, the heavyweight was, was Jacob Zuma. They were affronted uh, when they were told by NATO and indeed by Ban Ki-moon on behalf of uh, the intervening countries that they couldn't proceed to Tripoli as they were planning to do because uh, bombing was about to begin. So it was some time before they uh, got to Tripoli. They, they were, however, Zuma was the, the only person, to my knowledge, who actually dealt directly with Gaddafi. And, uh, Zuma and that, and that AU team on the, the first visit, Zuma then on a, on a second visit, or everybody else dealt with his son and uh, Prime Minister, Foreign Minister, and, and the entourage with very little indication of how fully they spoke for, for, for Gaddafi. And the AU were then regarded themselves as marginalized, I believe were indeed marginalized. The Western narrative was that they were seeking to save Gaddafi, who had of course squandered quite a lot of Libya's money uh, on uh, the African Union and African governments. But I believe myself, and I, I try to examine the record, that that judgment is unfair, uh, that the African Union was genuinely trying to negotiate a managed transition, the outcome of which would certainly have included Gaddafi's stepping down from, uh, from power, although the biggest difficulty that everybody found in the negotiations was, would Gaddafi step down from what was never very clear, since he pointed out he held no official position, uh, would he stay in Libya or would he leave Libya, and, and, and if so, for, for where? The intervening countries, on the other hand, were from the beginning seeking regime change. David Richards, who I've already referred to, General Richards, interestingly says that in the plan, the UK plan for military action, he had built in a pause after Benghazi had been saved, a pause for diplomacy, uh, assuming that, uh, that once get the, the, the assault on Benghazi had been checked, then that would be a moment to, to seek to, to negotiate. That didn't happen. France and indeed the UK political leaders were uninterested in it and indeed they used their relations with the National Transitional Council to discourage rather than to encourage engagement in uh, a mediated outcome. So whether such an outcome was ever possible we shall never know. My own view is that if there was a possibility, it would have required coordination uh, amongst those trying to bring it about. It was the Africans, the African Union, Zuma, who had the maximum potential leverage with Gaddafi, uh, and it was the intervening countries that had the maximum leverage with the National Transitional Council. But that's not what, uh, not what happened. Uh, indeed, in, in many ways, it was the, the opposite. And, uh, Having quoted once approvingly Jonas uh, Storer of, of Norway, I'll quote his judgment, which I think is a very fair judgment. I felt that the mindset in London and Paris didn't have openings for really reflecting on the diplomatic option. Had there been in the international community a willingness to pursue this track with some authority and dedication, 
I believe there could have been an opening to achieve a less dramatic outcome and avoid the collapse of the Libyan state. And I'll quote as well a view from uh, inside the African Union Commission, a consensus could have been achieved had the West approached the AU in a more subtle and respectful way, a closer coordination and honest and respectful conversation between the AU and the West would have made it possible to build sufficient international leverage to compel Gaddafi to accept to exit the scene with the required security guarantees for himself and his close associates. We can't be sure that judgment is, uh, is right um, because it didn't happen. Uh, what we can, I'm afraid, be sure of, uh, it's not what tried. Gaddafi was, of course, his obduracy was a huge obstacle. There was never a moment when his rhetoric changed when any kind of olive branch was offered to those he saw as his, uh, his opponents. But the marginalization of the African Union left it extremely bitter. Uh, Zuma denounced it in the Security Council and said the AU had been deliberately undermined and that has had continuing implications in the relationship between uh, the African Union and the, and, and the United Nations to, to this day as well as to the AU perspective on, on Libya, uh, which has ended up with it uh, insisting with the support on Russia on China on, on there being an African uh, special representative of the Secretary General. So my fourth question, uh, the day after post-conflict planning, uh, President Obama said that the intervention was justified, but not planning for the day after was the worst mistake of his presidency, which is a fairly generous assessment since my responsibility coming into this was for post-conflict planning, some of that must be my fault. So I naturally particularly felt that I should look at the truth or otherwise of that. What is absolutely true is that the decision makers who decided to intervene did so without any strategic foresight whatsoever. There were those African neighboring countries, Algeria, Chad, who warned of wider consequences for the region or from uh, the intervention. I'm, I'm not surprised that one can't find in Whitehall any reflection on possible consequences for the Sahel, but I'm a little surprised that I can't find any indication that even in Paris there was any consideration of implications that France uh, has subsequently found itself uh, closely involved in. But I think one also has to Again, understand the, the context. Ben Ali had gone so quickly from Tunisia. Mubarak had gone so quickly from uh, Egypt. The people making decisions assumed Gaddafi would go equally quickly from, from Libya. Uh, and therefore, in my judgment, it wasn't that they planned from the beginning a long-term regime change operation to topple Gaddafi, they assumed that that was already in, in the inevitability of the unfolding of the, uh, the Arab Spring. And one also has to bear in mind the pressures on decision makers from multiple crises. I, I talked to one of the key uh, uh, US decision makers whose responsibility spanned the, uh, the region, and, and he described rushing from meeting to meeting uh, in Washington with the Tunisia file, the Egypt file, the Libya file, the Yemen file, the Bahrain file, the Syria file, I mean the region was, and, and of all the countries in the region, Libya was the one that those decision makers probably understood least because 40 years of isolation had left foreign ministries and indeed the academy in many ways uh, with relatively little uh, depth of understanding of, of, of Libya. Uh, that's not an excuse, but I think it's to some extent an, an, an explanation. That said, there were serious efforts, uh, I would say really from three uh, organizations to think about the day after. The US set up something it called the Post-Q, Q for Gaddafi Task Force, the UK uh, had an effort led by DFID that also involved some other countries and we in the UN did our own uh, assessment and we interacted with each other through 2011 with the National Transitional Council. We couldn't yet treat them as a government in waiting because it wasn't clear what the outcome would be. They didn't yet have that uh, legitimacy. 
but uh, I went three times to Benghazi in that period. The Libyans themselves uh, set up a planning cell in their embassy in Abu Dhabi, with which uh, the three universe I referred to in interacted uh, with some very uh, smart Libyan professionals. But a central weakness, in my view, in, in that exercise, particularly on the part of the US and, and the Libyans, was a focus only on the first hundred days. Uh, and here you had the shadow of Baghdad and the chaos that followed uh, the, the fall of Baghdad weighing heavily. And, and there was huge concern that uh, Gaddafi might deliberately sabotage essential services and supplies, the water, uh, the oil, uh, the oil pipelines uh, with the fall of Tripoli. There was a huge emphasis on worrying about avoiding the chaos that was thought would be likely in, in Tripoli when Tripoli fell. Ironically, the fall of Tripoli happened more swiftly and with relatively little chaos and, and, and indeed not a huge amount of, uh, of bloodshed. And there was much less attention, although I think in the UN we tried to focus more on the, the medium and longer term issues, of building a state in what one Libyan uh, scholar has referred to as a stateless state, a state in which Gaddafi had for 40 years uh, been inimical to develop any of the internal institutions of a, uh, of a modern state, let alone a, a democracy. What planning was done had very little purchase later on, because in the end, the Libyans who became the first interim government were not those Libyans who'd been involved in the planning, and that's, uh, I can explain how that happened in the, in the book. But the biggest single issue that I think is argued about in retrospect is should there have been what people call a stabilization mission, uh, a large peacekeeping mission to maintain security. The first thing to say is that there was unanimous Libyan opposition to any suggestion of boots on the ground uh, uh, after, after the intervention, and that hostility went absolutely across uh, all factions in, in, in Libya. Certainly there was nobody in the international community who had the slightest willingness or interest in doing it. It would not have been a matter for the UN because it would have been uh, what one might call peace enforcement rather than peacekeeping and would have required uh, willing countries to, to do it. But I must say I can't in retrospect myself even regret that because uh, I'm not convinced that the record of large military presences in post-conflict uh, situations is such that uh, that would have gone in Libya's favour, uh, especially might have succeeded in turning most of Libya against it and it would uh, probably be still there in a very difficult situation today like some other large uh, peacekeeping uh, operations. Perhaps there are lesser options that might have been looked at, um, but I, I, I don't myself believe that that was a, a mistake. So then finally to turn to the first year and how things played out. The National Transitional Council moved itself from Benghazi to Tripoli after quite a lot of politicking. It appointed a first uh, interim government. They were not the people who had represented Libya externally. Dr. Mahmoud Jibril, who had been, was often referred to as the Prime Minister, Chairman of the National Transitional Council's Executive Committee, did not become the, the first interim Prime Minister. But some people mostly who had been outside Tripoli as opponents of Gaddafi, mostly very well professionally qualified, but with zero experience of, uh, of governance, uh, let alone in the, the kind of context that uh, had come to exist in, in Tripoli. But there are two major questions, I think, uh, that are important to reflect on regarding the first year. The first is, was the, the first election, the July 2012 election, held too soon? And sometimes people say the international community shouldn't have pushed the Libyans into a premature election. And some of you will probably know there's a whole literature around when post-conflict elections should or shouldn't uh, take place with what conditions. The first thing to say is, is that it was entirely a Libyan decision. It was not one that was advised, let alone dictated in any way, by the international community. It was taken before the fall of Tripoli, much debated in Benghazi, 
Dr. Jabril, the, the uh, so-called chair of the executive committee, had proposed a roadmap that would have expanded the National Transitional Council in some way, drafted a constitution. Only after that would elections have taken place. But that was roundly rejected, not just by the Muslim Brotherhood, who at that point thought themselves perhaps the best organized political potential political force, but across civil society in, in general, with an insistence that there must be uh, early elections and that the authority of the National Transitional Council was, was only very, very limited. And they adopted a constitutional declaration that set a, a very precise timeline for those first uh, elections. And not only that, in important places, two of the leading cities, Misrata and Benghazi, the Libyans went ahead and held elections without waiting for the international community or, or anybody else. My own view is not a doctrinal one. I don't think one can be prescriptive about when elections should, uh, should take place, although my successor as special representative in Libya, Dr. Tarek Mitri, has written that the first election was held too soon and security should have been restored before the election took place. Uh, my view is, is you can wait for an election if you have transitional authorities who are sufficiently accepted to get you to an election and the degree of acceptance that would have been necessary to achieve ideal security was a very high degree of acceptance. That didn't exist. The Libyan view was that the authority of the National Transitional Council and its first interim government was simply to get Libya to elections. They were highly suspicious of people who might seek to prolong their, uh, their period in, in, in office. And so I believe it was right and necessary and, and the Libyans some UN assistance did a remarkable job of organizing those first elections with a very high degree of, of registration and, uh, and participation and initially a very positive reception. The second question though is what could and should have been done about the fragmented security sector? Whose responsibility was it to address a situation in which there were hundreds of armed groups uh, across Libya. Some of them genuinely deserving the name of revolutionary brigades because they had fought in the, uh, the uprising against the Dutch's forces. Some of them had just emerged locally uh, after sitting on the sidelines to uh, take some local security responsibility. And some were frankly opportunistic gangs that uh, were ready to engage in, in crime. I think that situation was almost unique and unprecedented. What the United Nations talks about as DDR and SSR, security sector reform and uh, disarmament, demobilization and reintegration, is not normally particularly effective even when the job is to integrate one rebel army into an existing state army. In Libya, you had no existing, no real continuing state army. Uh, Gaddafi had kept it deliberately weak and what was there had dissolved. And you had a multiplicity of, of, of armed groups. But I do believe that those intervening countries that I described as having been the ones who built up the armed groups were the ones who had the major responsibility to seek to help Libya in addressing uh, a very difficult problem. And by and large, they didn't do that, uh, including the UK and France. Qatar made a bid to play a strong role, but by then there was backlash against uh, Qatar's role in, in Libya. And the early willingness that was there on the part, at least, of the genuine revolutionary brigades to disband once an election had taken place didn't indeed continue after the election and after the interim government had made the perhaps fatal mistake of putting just about everybody on the payroll uh, and creating an incentive for numbers of, of armed uh, persons to, to remain. So those last two issues are perhaps the two major issues still facing Libya today. When to hold elections, what kind of elections, under what conditions, within what framework, with or without a constitution, which Libya doesn't yet have, and that issue is being argued out now between the international community and Libya. But I'm afraid, whereas the 2011-12 context was one in which all the Libyans wanted elections, the current context is one in which 
those who see themselves as having some political power are more interested in avoiding elections that uh, might see them have to give up power that is based on no real continuing uh, uh, legitimacy. And the other question, again, is what to do about the security sector. Now that has morphed in many ways, but it is still highly uh, divided security sector. And those divisions have been made worse in the meantime by a degree of involvement of external actors, which is radically beyond anything that was in the case, was the case in the period uh, I knew Libya up to 2012, uh, in which the external actors have effectively made proxies of different armed actors and bear a huge responsibility for uh, Libya's further civil wars. Uh, at least today, there isn't uh, very little uh, open fighting. So those are the two major questions that I think carry forward from issues I look at in the book to, to Libya today. And then there are issues that carry forward into the, the broader debate. You might have noticed that I haven't even used the phrase responsibility to protect uh, so far. And that's partly because I don't actually believe, although some people would disagree, uh, that the fact that the United Nations General Assembly had adopted the responsibility to protect was a significant factor in giving rise to the intervention. Responsibility to protect came from the experiences of Rwanda and Bosnia, but the experiences of Rwanda and Bosnia would have pushed the actors towards intervention, even if it hadn't in the meantime been in some way formulated by the, the United General Assembly. But there is a major effect in the likelihood of what people might call a responsibility to protect intervention in future. And of course, we saw that very quickly in the Syria debate as to what forms of intervention there, there, there might be. And we see it, of course, in the Putin narrative uh, about Western intervention. And I'm going to end with a quote of all people from Sergei Lavrov, who is not someone who I quote approvingly very much uh, at the moment. But he said in June 2011, if somebody would like to get authorization to use force to achieve a shared goal by all of us, they would have to specify in the resolution who this somebody is, who is going to use this authorization, what the rules of engagement are, and the limits on the use of force. Uh, and that's hard to disagree with as a statement of why it will be extremely difficult to envisage the United Nations Security Council uh, authorizing an intervention of anything like the Libya intervention in future. Thank you very much indeed for giving us such a clear picture of what happened and actually zeroing in on all the key questions that people have. Uh, you can see that you're, you're a, a diplomat rather than an academic with the clarity with which you identify the key questions of what needs to, needs to look at. Don't so, diplomats evade them. I mean. <laughs> no, no. You, you, you went for them. Exactly. Academics evade them, I meant, with the clarity. But you've gone for really looking at all those questions that, that get asked. And, and thank you very much for, for doing that. I'm sure we have plenty of questions, but before, before and perhaps I can come with one of my own, one thing that's always intrigued me is the way that when we talk about Libya, that the actions of Britain and France are always spoken together. Britain and France, UK and France, etc. And I, I wonder, is there anything you can say about how far were they united, or were, were there slightly different things going on? I'm particularly interested in the French side. I mean, what's happened with Sarkozy has obviously got rather murky, and obviously it's difficult mm. to go into that. But what was your sense from what you saw of the role of France and how it differed from Britain at the time? I think they were very close. Yeah. Someone, you know, a, a senior uh, civil servant uh, at the centre of this pointed out that this followed the kind of agreement between France and Britain that they were intending to restore, you know, post-Iraq cooperation uh, in the foreign policy field. Um, so that was already there. There was certainly very strong military cooperation, and um, you know I quoted David Cameron's account of the cell in Paris, but that was in fact that was headed by Sarkozy's military advisor, but with uh, the British absolutely embedded uh, in there. So so there was close close cooperation there. there was undoubtedly close cooperation in the Security Council uh, in the the negotiations around the the resolutions. 
there was very little visible cooperation on the ground after the fall of Tripoli uh, between the UK and France. Uh, and although I'm critical in many ways of the UK role, at least one could see some thinking going on in the UK government about a post-conflict responsibility. I fail to see any signs of that in the French uh, uh, system. The French were immediately interested, as far as I could see, in arms sales and contracts and um, potential economic uh, interests. Was the uh, same, which, that was accused of Britain as well. Was that, how fair well, was that? I, I, I'm sure that's partly fair. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of rather enjoy quoting the fact that when David Cameron uh, went to Egypt and, and watched Gaddafi's speech, his, his famous uh, rat speech uh, on television from a hotel room, he was actually on an armed sales promotion visit, uh, which was diverted to Tahrir Square for a photo opportunity in Tahrir Square. So, so I'm sure that, uh, that, that motivation was there as, as, as well. And in fact, we, the UN, got, got thrust into a role that we hadn't planned for on the military side. You know, the, the UN doesn't do armies, you know. Uh, I mean, the UN tries to do police, be helpful with building police. But the normal assumption is that a country asks whatever bilateral partners it feels comfortable with to be the ones who help it uh, develop its, uh, its military. A little way in, the first chief of staff of the uh, Libyan chief of staff was so frustrated with the competition among bilaterals that he came to the UN and said, would you please coordinate this? And he named six countries that he wanted to, uh, to, to be involved in that, uh, in that coordination because there was bilateral competition uh, uh, and undoubtedly future arms sales to, to uh, a country that could afford to buy them would have been part of that motivation. But the sort of the diffid side of UK thinking was, was there with no visible equivalent uh, so far as, uh, as France was concerned. And, and to be honest, that's not untypical. I mean, France is not a... Uh, unless anyone can contradict me, it's not a major peace-building actor um, in the way that uh, uh, the DFID and USAID at least aspire to be, with mm -hmm. whatever. No, is there a French equivalent? I'm just trying to think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I couldn't even name the agency <laughs> that would be... Well, that maybe, the answer. <laughs> maybe that's the answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, oh, but there, oh, aren't, there aren't the equivalent French sources yet. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah. we have Cameron and David Richards and so on. I used uh, two books. One is by Bernard-Henri Lévy, who, of course, uh, sees himself as the person who inspired the entire intervention uh, and, and did play a significant role in taking the Libyans to meet Sarkozy and pushing Sarkozy. And I, his account, although vainglorious, is, I think, probably largely truthful. And then there's one by a, a sort of French military uh, writer. But... Uh, I await uh, Sarkozy's um, memoir. Uh, memoir uh, yeah. <laughs> we all do. Mm. Thank you.